Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Allison M. Parker to discuss her new book, Unceasing Militant, The Life of Mary Church Terrell, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2020. Born into slavery at the end of the Civil War, Mary Church Terrell became one of the most prominent activists of her time, working at the intersection of rights for women and African Americans, anti-colonialism, criminal justice reform, and beyond. Her career stretched from the late 19th century to the civil rights movement of the 1950s, and she was able to see the result of the NAACP's efforts in Brown versus Board of Education before she died. The first president of the National Association of Colored Women and a founding member of the NAACP, Terrell collaborated closely with other leaders such as Ida B. Wells Barnett, Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Mary McLeod Bethune. But she was also unafraid to disagree on principle and political strategy. Unceasing Militant, the first full-length biography of Terrell, integrates her extraordinary public activism with her romantic, reproductive, parental, economic, and mental health challenges. Terrell insisted upon African Americans' women's full humanity and equality, and honoring that legacy, Allison Parker deftly weaves resources of all kinds, including privately held letters and diaries, to provide an account of a woman dedicated to changing the culture and institutions that perpetuated inequality throughout the United States, but also a breathing, loving, nuanced woman navigating life. Allison M. Parker is Richards Professor of American History and Chair of the History Department at the University of Delaware. She researches and teaches at the intersections of gender, race, disability, citizenship, and the law in U.S. history. Her earlier works include two books, Articulating Rights, 19th Century American Women on Race Reform in the State, Cornell University Press 2010, and Purifying America, Women, Cultural Reform, and Pro-Censorship Activism, 1873 to 1933, published by Northern Illinois University Press. Her most recent public-facing scholarship is the 2020 New York Times op-ed, When White Women Wanted a Monument to Black Mammies. I'm delighted to welcome Allison Parker to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm so thrilled to be here. So Terrell was extremely well-known in her time but there's no academic biography of her remarkable life. So what what brought you to her? And, and what were you to ho- hoping to accomplish in this book that had been overlooked in previous works? Yeah, I actually came to her through my second book monograph, Articulating Rights, which was really a look at Black and white women's political thought in the 19th century. And I was looking at how they were articulating a role for women in reform and for the role of the state in reform at a period before uh, most women in most states had the right to vote. And I ended the book with a chapter on Mary Church Terrell. And so each chapter was a mini biography of sorts, but not really focused on their, as much on their lives as much on their politics and their thought. However, I read all the biographies that I could find on each of the women in order to be able to prepare for writing about their thought. 
And when I went to read the biographies on Mary Church Terrell, I was shocked to find that there were none. And um, that was really the beginning of um, the sense that there was a, a huge hole for a woman who was so important. And of course, African-American women's historians had been writing about her um, for a couple of decades at least, but mostly in books on the women's club movement or black women's activism. Um, so she appears in lots of chapters uh, of books, but hadn't really been given that kind of sustained attention. And so that was one part of it. And also I was becoming really entranced by her thought and her life. And so I wanted to learn more. And I also was puzzled by the fact that uh, so far, the only books that had been written about her as biographies were for children and young adults. And that was the other part. There were actually quite a few of those. And so the, the whole thing was a mystery to me and just intrigued me. And so I started writing the biography as I finished that last chapter. No, it's a, it's a terrible shame. And even as in the book, there are moments where I think, oh my goodness, she could have written another chapter. Like in the conclusion where you start talking about, well, when she worked on this case with Rosa Parks, I thought, whoa, 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 what, how is this in the conclusion? I mean, this book, uh, and you say this in the acknowledgments somewhere that there was an editor who helped you keep it short. And it's a real page turner. This reads so beautifully. It's an academic biography, but it, it has the pacing of a trade biography in that it has such lively writing. It, the You do a really amazing job going back and forth in time in order for us to understand these various sh strands of her life. It's, it's just beautifully written, uh, but it does seem like you could have written more. And I kind of wonder, you know, where's the documentary? Where's the, where's the biopic? I mean, this is, this woman, you couldn't make this up. Um, I read the opening paragraph to somebody who happened to be sitting here and said, I I've never heard of this person. So how is that, you know, how's that possible? Um, how did you decide on the title? Unceasing Militant. Unceasing Militant is a phrase from Paul Robeson. And Paul Robeson uh, was giving her eulogy um, after she died and basically commending her for her unceasing militancy. They had ended up working in the 30s, 40s, and 50s on a variety of causes because uh, even though she's often linked with a certain notion of Black women's, club women's respectability, which is true, she also was a fearless activist for um, workers' rights and for the rights of women who were caught up in the criminal justice system uh, against, you know, in cases that were pretty dubious, where they had been raped or assaulted by white men or they had killed uh, one of these white men in self-defense, you know, these kinds of situations where it was perfectly clear that they uh, were not guilty of the crime and were being sentenced, in fact, to death by electric chair in several different cases where she became involved. So these are the kinds of things that she was working on. And Paul Robeson appreciated the fact that she could lend her respectability and her clout to these movements, and she worked directly with the Communist Party starting in the 30s to help them on their 
legal defense campaigns when they weren't when when certain kinds of people who were coming up uh, and were defendants in cases were not the kinds of people who, that the NAACP was taking, partially because the NAACP was focusing on an education-oriented plan to desegregate schools, and they were being really careful about not taking cases that had to do with rape or anything that was controversial. <laughs> and so she, you know, she was really interested in moving past that. But she also, of course, was a founder, a co-founder of the NAACP. And she and Ida B. Wells were the only two black women to sign the uh, founding documents. So you know, she was a member of the NAACP, even as she was working with the Communist Party. No, and you make clear she's a you know she's a, a stalwart Republican who does not make the switch to FDR along with Bethune and some others that do. Um, I mean, she's at the intersection of all of these institutions, and she builds so many of them. It it it's head spinning actually in the number of things. And I I really liked the part of the book about the NAACP and how they were not taking cases in which. Black men were accused of raping white women, and that that meant the Scottsboro Nine were outside of their purview. And I love the way you described the, you know, you can see a strategy on the part of the NAACP, and you can see an unbelievable frustration on Terrell's part that that this is, uh, uh, this they won't take this up, and therefore she will go to whomever will, and it's the communists who are willing to do that. Um, part of what makes this book different is your access to documents that other people did not have and also did not look for. So it's not just that you were handed a box of letters, but it's also that you have been looking places that nobody was looking. Uh, how Tell us a little bit about how you got access to these love letters between her and her husband, her diaries, um, and and I just have to put in that I love the way you play the letters of the enslavers of Terrell, uh, uh, sorry, Terrell and her husband, Bertho, against their own letters. I mean, it's just wonderful to watch hist- a historian have all of that and show, oh, well, they're saying that. Well, that wasn't true at the time because I've checked the census records on that. It's just, oh, it just jumps off the page. It's wonderful. Well, thank you. Um, I think in terms of the documents, one of the interesting things is that I had been a 19th century historian. And so I truly wasn't used to the idea of interviewing people. And so oral interviews just weren't on my horizon. And um, I knew that the uh, family still lived in Highland Beach, Maryland, which was a black beach resort in which she actually lived next door to Frederick Douglass. And on the other side was uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. So it was a wonderful uh, place uh, of retreat for the black elite from Baltimore and DC and Philadelphia. But um, what happened was that I was at a black history conference giving a talk on Terrell and I was presenting with Stephen Middleton, who's a professor who's now retired from Mississippi State. And he was presenting on her husband, Robert H. Terrell. And somebody asked us afterwards um, if 
something about their romantic life. And I said that I was very interested in learning more about it and that I felt that it was relevant to telling the story of her life because if we knew about her support system and how she kept going you know, in such difficult circumstances and if we could find out more about that partnership, it would be a positive thing. And Stephen Middleton said, oh, well, I visited the family and they said that they had, in his words, racy love letters <laughs> that they hadn't given to the Library of Congress or Howard University. And so I said, oh, well, I'd actually be really interested in seeing those. So he facilitated an introduction to the family for me and actually got excited about the idea of coming down too. So we met together at Highland Beach to meet the family and go over the letters. And um, from there, we were able to see more diaries and other things that they still had in the collection. But one of the things that was also exciting about that first visit is that we realized that some of these letters from the 1890s were in pretty bad shape. You know, they'd been folded into their envelopes for all those, uh, you know, over 100 years. Um, and so, uh, in consultation with and with the permission of the family, I contacted Oberlin uh, College, where she was one of the early Black women graduates. She graduated with a full bachelor's degree, a four-year bachelor's degree, which was called the gentleman's degree at the time. And she had a master's degree from Oberlin. This is all in the 1880s. So um, they were very eager to acquire these papers and preserve them and share them. And uh, they, they went and picked up the papers and then have since done a fabulous job of um, bringing the family to a special symposium on Terrell. And then more recently, with the first Black woman being inaugurated as the president of Oberlin, this is Carmen Ambar, uh, they included as part of the inaugural ceremonies, we came out again with the family, and they uh, renamed the library, the Mary Church Terrell Library. So it was a very exciting moment, and the family's been thrilled with the uh, attention that has they've received. Um, and then at that same trip, we also were able to go to uh, a storage unit that they had where some of her material objects were still located. And um, when I asked about whether this was something that, you know, some of these items might be uh, appropriate for the new, it hadn't opened yet, uh, Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture, they said that they had actually tried, um, but had kind of been turned down by a receptionist who said they needed an intake form. So I said, I will contact someone there. And I found a, a Smithsonian um, curator who, of course, went right away down to Highland Beach. And so some of Mary Church Terrell's and Robert H. Terrell's belongings are part of that Smithsonian Institution Museum. And that was another really gratifying piece of this exploration is to be able to share that material culture especially the lives of these uh, elite, you know, the black elite in DC with that major museum. It was, it was really a wonderful experience. And also interesting in terms of Oberlin, because uh, we'll talk about her, her early life in a minute, but she has a very complicated relationship with Oberlin. She did receive this remarkable education and she seems to have had an on-campus experience that was integrated, that helped her flourish, not imper not perfect, but 
really pretty positive. Yet when she brought her daughters back to go, she was incensed and at war with the administrators to say, how could Oberlin have moved to be a segregated campus? Uh, so how interesting that now Oberlin is back to playing a role of of, of making her life more visible and uh, and connecting it back to the university. Let me ask you about her early life. You you write racism and the precarity fostered by systemic marginalization shaped Molly's understanding of herself and her world and made her determined to assert her own value as a human being through activism. Tell us a little bit about the life that she's born into. Uh, and and how quickly she moves to a sort of different class, um, and a little bit about more about her education. Yeah, um, so she was called Molly as a child, and so when I'm talking about her personally in her personal life and or as a child, I refer to her as Molly. Um, and in those, it, it, she was born enslaved in Memphis, Tennessee, in 1863 during the Civil War. And her parents were the slaves of their fathers. So their white fathers were their owners and their enslavers. And so their mothers were enslaved by these men. So that creates a set of complications to begin with, but it gives them some, they were never emancipated by their fathers, but when the war ended, and they were free, her parents were given access to either loans or funding from their the white fathers uh, and or their friends, and were able to set up businesses in Memphis, Tennessee in 1865. And so um, her mother, Louisa Ayers Church, had been an expert hair and uh, basically like wig designer uh, with real human hair for white women in their super fancy, <laughs> a very elaborate multi-layered hair displays that they would have for uh, fancy events. And so she opened up a salon for white women to buy these hair pieces. And uh, her father, Robert Terrell, decided that he wanted to open up a saloon. And he did so but he was denied a license purely and only on the basis of his race, which was an early black code law in Tennessee and Memphis. And he actually challenged on the basis of the brand new Civil Rights Act. And so this went to, to court and he won his case in court and was allowed to get a license. But as you can imagine, he earned the enmity of white Memphians who were resentful of these newly freed blacks and especially Union soldiers, black Union soldiers who were stationed near Memphis. So in 1866, when she's just three years old, her father is um, a victim of what's called the Memphis Massacre which is this horrible riot by white Irish police officers um, that targets blacks and especially 
those who are being successful, like her father. And he was shot in the back of the head in his saloon and left for dead. And miraculously, he survived. But as she described it, he had a bullet hole in the back of his head that you could put your finger into. And it changed his personality dramatically. He became angry and had horrible migraines. And it was in a lot of pain, as you can imagine. So it led to the eventual dissolution of her parents' marriage um, and actually probably contributed to their decision on top of the terrible uh, segregated schools in Tennessee to send her uh, north to Ohio for her education. She went to Antioch Model School and uh, was there in Yellow Springs until she moved to Oberlin. Yeah, I just want to say the first 25 pages of your book, I felt like I was being given these granular examples of enslavement, the frightening fluidity of the Civil War, the culture of violence, uh, revisionist lost cause, marriage practices. It, it was actually stunning. It was really stunning. And I stopped and I and I realized what had happened, that you had sort of taken this one person and you had walked us through the riot, walked us through this case that I've never heard of, that he, that her father had the courage to take using a law that really got passed afterwards and won his case. And it really, the the opening pages, I, I think, either recenter readers who know this history. I think I do know this most of this history quite well, but for uh, for somebody who didn't, you would be backfilling in a way that it normally would take a hundred pages to to backfill. So it's beautiful. I, I really that's hard to do as an academic, that kind of um uh fast but clear writing. So I just I just wanted to say I, I loved that. Um, so she goes to Oberlin um, and is, as you said earlier, educated not in the girls' two-year, but the men's four-year. She studies languages she's not supposed to study, dead languages like, like Latin. She, her father has her also um, learning German. What, uh, what happens to her there and what as she comes out is the sort of first thing that she sort of turns her attention to. And that's a hard question because she's never just looking at one thing. That's kind of what defines her, but yeah. it's a podcast. So I'll just <laughs> try to. Well, I, I think that one of the things that she learned at Oberlin was the gift of being diplomatic and being friendly and being able to talk across different um, classes and races mm -hmm. And she became the life of the party and had friends who were both white and black there and really benefited from the um, relatively unproblematic, comparatively speaking, uh, integration that existed at the time in the uh, 1880s. And so that gave her both confidence as she moved forward, but it also allowed her to know that even when white people were being problematic or were saying things that were downright racist, that she didn't give up on them usually. She kept working with them and kept trying to bring in the what she believed was the perspective of 
either African-Americans or black women specifically, depending on the situation. And so she was always arguing against lynching, against uh, the kind of refusal for, of blacks to be able to vote. Um, so all of these disenfranchisement, you know, she, she talked about that a lot. And these are all things that mattered to her, but she felt that whites had to understand these things and had to come around to supporting them because they made up the majority of the population. And so she never gave up on uh, on a kind of politics of coalition building. And that put her in a lot of really awkward situations where she could be both humiliated and defeated by whites who didn't care, but she also did not give up. So one of the things I loved about the book were the photos, um, particularly your captions. I don't think I've ever seen captions like this in a book before. They're a kind of combination of sociological analysis of the setting, furniture, uh, clothes, everything, though, even where they had the picture taken, you let us know this is an elite studio, that where it is. Uh, and, in, and in addition, you just provide an enormous amount of background. I'm, I'm wondering how, and excuse that I don't know this well enough, how available are those photos? How, how, how unusual are they? Were some of them private and have not been there? Or are these the kinds of hiding in plain sight photographs that have been around in archives? In fact, quite a few of them have been in the Library of Congress and at Howard University. So they are hiding in plain sight. Uh, some of them were certainly with the family. So it's a mix of all those things and elsewhere. But um, I appreciate that you noticed that. And I was really trying hard to write captions that had meaning. And my my the one I'm most proud of is actually of a group photograph of the National Association of Colored Women from its founding meeting in 1896. And my caption goes on for an entire page. And I absolutely insisted on that because what I wanted to do is identify as many of these women as possible and based not on who they became, what you knew them for later, but what they were doing in 1896 that got them to that very first meeting. And to me, being able with the help of other Black women's historians who were um, willing to collaborate with me and try to identify all of these different women, we, I think I managed to identify the great majority of them. And that was a major triumph in my uh, you know, small world of this book. Uh, I did uh, appreciate my own efforts in that one, I have to admit. And so that's on page 67. It's the only thing that I had marked for the podcast with a post-it note and a circle. It's my favorite photograph in the book for all the reasons that you set out. It is not just a photo. It's, it, is, it, is, it is a mini history. You could write an entire book on this photo. Um, like Gordon Chang's Ghost of Gold Mountain, which I did a podcast on a couple of weeks ago, and I, I recommend to anyone who wants to better understand American history, you know, he opens with a photograph that we're all very familiar of, the, the Union Pacific meeting up with the uh, other railroad, which I'm, and, you know, and the absence of any Chinese railroad workers in the picture. And then he later shows there is actually a smudge, and that smudge is a Chinese worker who is in the photo moving at the time of the photograph. I look at, and, and that tells a whole story. This photo could be the subject of an entire book. The, 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 the way they're dressed, the way they 
are presenting, each one is presenting themselves so differently. Um, and I think that's something that comes out in the narrative of Terrell's life that this isn't about black leadership because 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 everyone has their own idea of what the leadership approach should be. She clashes with the men. She clashes with women. She is clashing with people who completely agree with her on where they want to go, but she sees a difference. And somehow this photograph for me captures so much of that, the book's, the book's pluralism about, about leadership in this period. Oh, it's stunning. And I'm so glad the press let you do that. I did have a thought of like, Wow, they let her do that. Interesting. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about suffrage. Um, it's one of the things that uh, you describe in an early chapter. Tell us a little bit about, you mentioned earlier, it's it's one of the things that grounds her Black feminism is her, her belief in women as full citizens with, with the right to vote. So Tell us a little bit about what she did, who she was working with, and uh, the complexity there. Yeah, so she came to uh, believe that women deserve the right to vote when she was at Oberlin and had to participate in a debate where they had to decide the question. And the more she thought about it, the more the injustice of women not having the right to vote became very clear to her. Uh, And then when she moved to D.C., permanently and became an educator there, she became involved in the local reform movements and organizations. But the truth is, when you're in the nation's capital, you can go to all the national conventions. So when uh, the newly reorganized national, or actually the new National Council of Women met, she would go to that meeting when the National Association Uh, or National American Woman Suffrage Association met. She went to those meetings. And so she uh, would introduce herself and talk about Black men's disenfranchisement and ask Black women, I mean, white women, if they would support that cause. And so she was introduced in this way to Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and many of the other women. And uh, sometimes they gave her a forum to speak, and sometimes uh, they rejected her requests for a more inclusive suffrage perspective. But what she did do is she believed in direct action and she believed in militancy. And so when there was the plan for the big suffrage parade uh, right before President Woodrow Wilson's inauguration, uh, she wanted to join. And uh, one of the things that I had been really puzzled by is that a lot of popular culture uh, depictions of this march focus on just Ida B. Wells and tell a story that is true, which is that she tried to walk in the Illinois delegation and um, was initially blocked and then kind of inserted herself at the last minute and walked with them anyhow. Um, That is a true story, but I had read in various articles and book chapters that Terrell had agreed to walk segregated in the back. And this was the most inconceivable thing ever in my mind, because if she had agreed to that, which seemed highly unlikely after all the work I had done on her, uh, she would have complained about it is basically what it came down to. So at one point, I just decided I have to stop doing everything else and I have to find out what happened at that parade. And so by looking through um, 
it turns out some black women's historians had actually said that black women marched throughout the parade, but they were somehow ignored by um, the larger popular culture narrative. And then on top of that, um, a lot of newspapers gave very specific details, and these are black and white newspapers, about where black women were. And um, so by the end, I could construct, and also her own autobiography told some of the story, um, where they all worked and marched in different units based on their prof profession, on their status as housewives, whether they were nurses or teachers. And then a lot of these women did march, quote unquote, at the back, but it's only because the processional chart uh, indicated that all the states would go at the back. So in fact, Ida B. Wells was also marching at the back, but not in a segregated way. So I did think that that was an important thing to try to correct and was glad that I had found this out before the uh, suffrage anniversary that just passed so that I could be able to talk about it and give a more clear understanding of what happened. But even though Alice Paul had blocked these women, and even though Terrell had had to fight her to get the uh, Delta Sigma Theta sorority, uh, which is a you know, brand new black sorority at Howard, um, able to walk with the other college women. That didn't mean that she gave up on working with Alice Paul. Uh, she continued to work with her uh, because she liked the way she approached reform and politics. And so she was and her daughter were two of the documented women. I think we have three who are documented black women who participated in the picketing the White House with the National Women's Party during World War One. So she was definitely a, a militant, but she's been mischaracterized, I think, as somebody who would not have done that uh, until the end of her life when uh, the, she did also picket and do things like that at the end. But I don't think that that's an accurate portrayal. It's not about her radically changing her beliefs in, uh, when she's older, which is the story that the children's books tell. The children's biographies all say she started out respectable and then became uh, this kind of radical in her last right. decade when she was wow. off, you know, almost 90 and she had nothing left to lose. But that's not actually true. No, that's, an, well, like we could have an entire podcast on the investment in those kinds of narratives, right? Um, Peniel Joseph has written similarly about our desire to put King into that box as well, to sort of design it as, oh, and at the last minute, he had this radical moment. I think you do a really wonderful job in the book in multiple descriptions of her relationships with people with whom she disagreed to show this tension between I'm sorry, you do not believe this and that you are wrong, her very principled stand, but also this very practical, okay, I do disagree. I think this woman is being racist, but that doesn't mean that I can't work with her. And it seemed like the only line in the sand she had was anti-lynching. Uh, that seemed to be a litmus test for her where she would draw that hard line and just say, I'm, I'm not sure I can work with with. Uh, with people. Let me ask you, so in, in 1896, as the Supreme Court is passing Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, she helps found the National Association of Colored Women. And I was going to talk a little bit about it, but also her preference for this term colored as a political term and what it meant for her in terms of how she placed herself uh, in 
the racial politics of her time. Yeah, she really preferred the term colored. And she personally was very light skinned. Um, because, but she said, it's not uh, about denying the fact that I have African heritage. It's that I want to be able to emphasize the fact that people in America of African descent have skin colors that range from what she called pure white to, you know, to really black. And her point was that you have this range and it's due to sexual assault and it's due to the fact that especially during the period of enslavement, black women were not able to uh, control their own bodies and their reproduction in the way that they would have wanted, at least not as fully as they would have wanted, right? And so in that context, she says, I don't want to erase that truth. And so colored allows us to remember why there are women like me with this very fair skin who are considered to be black, right? And so she never ever denied her blackness or her African heritage. And she said, you know, I'm proud of my African heritage. I am an African-American. So she used that term, but that's not the one that she wanted to use in the uh, language of organizations and organization building. And she, she did not like the term Negro at all. She was not fond of that. Um, but she did help found the National Association of Colored Women in 1896 and became the first president. And one of the things that was motivating her and the other women is that they really wanted a national forum to be able to speak out on issues that mattered to them that were a secular forum, too, because a lot of the public space for black men, they were ministers or they were politicians, both things that were harder for women to be, not impossible, but harder. And so uh, they wanted a space that would be theirs alone. And so instead of being an adjunct or an auxiliary of um, you know, a, a religious organization like the Baptist Association, you know, this was an attempt for, by these very religious women to create a national platform for themselves. And so they tried to unite all the black women's clubs that had been founded since the Civil War in many, many states and bring them together into a national organization, hoping that that would give them access to some um, of these white women's organizations that said you had to have a national membership and a national organization to be part of something like the National Council of Women, for example. And so they were also aiming to find a way to give themselves a forum and a voice. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, her husband, who became a very important judge in D.C., and one of the things I really appreciated with the book was the way you described the way she made this relationship with him such that she remained this autonomous activist um, and, and how together they had both a sort of sharing of all things, romantic and, and intellectual. Uh, she had a lot of issues with her health. Uh, she had multiple miscarriages and a stillbirth that almost killed her. Um, can you say a little bit about their marriage? And uh, I love the way you integrated her um, sort of serious depression about not being able to have a child and also how that depression is something that did not leave her, that is with her pr uh, 
throughout her life. But just say a little bit about their about their marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in some ways people had told her when she studied Greek and Latin, you'll never find a husband, right? Who would marry you? And so when she moved to, to D.C. to become a teacher in the M Street so-called pu- uh, public colored high school, she met Robert Terrell, who had uh, been born and raised a slave for the first seven years of his life, uh, but who eventually became uh, a Harvard University graduate and then got a law degree after they were married from Howard University and then uh, became, as you point out, the first black municipal court judge in DC. So they were a power couple for sure. And um, one of the things that was wonderful to read their love letters was to see how much they did care for each other and how they uh, had a passionate, you know, and it was, they had a passionate sexual attachment to each other and intellectual. Um, They shared a lot of similar ideas about civil rights and uh, so-called duty to the race. You know, this idea that uh, she felt that it was important to make a stand and to become a political activist um, because she had been so well-educated, because she came from slavery, and look where she was. And so I think that there was something to be done in her mind with that education. Um, so they, he really encouraged her to move out into the public world, to participate in giving speeches. He did not uh, hold back on that. And in part, at one point, he was he was concerned because she was so depressed after you know these deaths that she experienced. She had a lot of reproductive health issues, and a lot of them, you know, she really did feel either related to uh, inferior care in substandard segregated hospitals in D.C. Um, or in an, in the first pregnancy, uh, she learned while she was in a late term of her pregnancy, that her childhood friend Thomas Moss and his associates had been lynched in Memphis, Tennessee. And she was devastated by this information. It's the same information that devastates, in a different way, uh, Ida B. Wells, who is also friends with Thomas Moss and living at the time in Memphis. And they both lose this very close friend, and they share this drive Uh, Although Ida B. Wells is more focused on anti-lynching as her uh, kind of reform goal, whereas Terrell has a few different goals and it's not as kind of focused on that one. But also she was in this late pregnancy and then lost the baby and and had kidney disease. And as you said, almost died a, a couple of times during this really difficult reproductive period in the 1890s. And it's the exact period when she's becoming president of the National Association of Colored Women, when she's appointed the first black woman on the DC Board of Education. So she's visibly pregnant multiple times and loses these babies in really brutal, terrible circumstances. So um, her activist work is her salvation. And her husband recognizes that that's the case. And so he does not want her to stay at home and be depressed. He wants her out there because he knows that she thrives when she's able to participate as an activist. And that's something that continues for the rest of their life. It's not a temporary thing on his part. He's always supportive of her uh, career. Um, you, You mentioned the lynching and she she's a republican her entire life she is 
regularly disappointed in uh, Republican presidents' failure to pass it, pass an anti-lynching legislation. It comes up over and over and over again in, in the book as some Black leaders are encouraging uh, voters to, to think about F- FDR instead of Hoover. She will not, uh, though, and then she's further disappointed by Democrats' uh, inability to pass anti-lynching law, which we could continue to this day. Uh, just say a little bit about her Republican politics and how she is grounded in the party, but she is constantly disappointed by the party. And in a lot of ways, being a member of the party makes it harder for her to get a job in the federal government when she finally is 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 stressed and in and in need of a job. Yeah, I mean the interesting thing is her Republican party affiliations start early because her father uh, is such a strong Republican in Tennessee. This is the party of Lincoln after all. And so they are real products of reconstruction. And they know that the Democrats in the South were using the phrase, not only were they the party of secession and the party of enslavement, but they also used the slogan, the party of white supremacy. So she felt that there was just no doubt (laughs) that it was not an option, that being a Democrat was unacceptable. So she never moved. And in fact, Woodrow Wilson confirmed that for her because it's in 1913, while she's in the nation's capital, that she watches as he implements uh, segregation in the federal government, really for the first time in a very systematic way. And so that's a huge blow. It comes late, uh, comparatively speaking, and um, it's really devastating. And so she doesn't trust the Democrats at all. And so, yes, it's true that she's always disappointed by the Republicans, but she lobbies for them and works for them on their campaigns and becomes a paid campaign worker starting in 1920 when black women and white women get the right to vote. And she still believes that she can influence them from within. And so that's what she's always trying to do, pushing for uh, anti-lynching bills, you know, pushing them to take these matters seriously. Um, but she does not make the strategic break that, as you say, a lot of African-American women and men who are interested in politics did start to shift in the 1930s. It actually took until um, the mid-40s for them to shift more fully into uh, the Democratic Party in terms of voter registration. But um, the the shift starts earlier and um, she's concerned about her finances and she's getting into her 70s in the 1930s and she wants to get a job in the federal government, in the bureaucracy, in that expanding New Deal bureaucracy. And she can get low level jobs as a clerk, but she's having a hard time getting the kind of a position that somebody like her friend Mary McLeod Bethune gets, um, you know, really taking a, a high-profile position. And um, part of it is at the end when she kind of gives up on looking, it's because they tell her, you know, it's your party affiliation isn't right. And so she's not willing to make that shift. Uh, she doesn't really get the job. But it's an, it's an interesting look into what life was like for low-level federal government employees in the 30s, when you see the systemic racism and segregation and the treatment that she 
had to endure just to earn a paycheck during that time frame. When she's also fighting for the Scottsboro Nine, picketing, uh, you know, for uh, desegregated spaces and all the other things that she's doing in the 30s at the same time. That's yeah, remarkable what she does. And then every once in a while, you'll throw something else in like, oh, well, and she took in this young woman who was having issues and was pregnant and took care of her until she had her adoption. It's like, oh, while she was doing all these other things. It's kind of a remarkable multitasking at the highest of levels. Um, I have students read the progress of Black women in my American political thought class, uh, and hats off to Cheryl Pinder for putting it in Black political thought from Cambridge. Uh, and a student of mine who's normally incredibly critical of reading old things, Taylor, and always um, is disappointed in me, said that um, Terrell was her new favorite person. So uh, it, it, it really spoke to her today to, to read Terrell. Uh, and I recommend that as well as the book. But you, you're very careful to say that, that her Black feminism really has these sort of three pieces. One we've talked about, which has to do with you know, suffrage and citizenship. Another has to do with purity and Black women's alleged impurity. And one of the things that I think you do in the book, which is amazing, and I'm stunned about the diary, is you try to show how aware she was that exposing the sexuality, uh, her own sexuality, had repercussions for everyone else. So it wouldn't just be about her reputation, but she would somehow be uh, affecting how, get, handing the other side uh, to, uh, to a weapon. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you, reading through these diaries, realize that after her husband has has died, uh, she has this affair with Oscar Stanton DePriest, who in 1928 becomes the first African-American from the North to be elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. And she doesn't write about this directly. And so I'm wondering about this moment when you discovered it and also you know, writing about something that you know she was so concerned about exposing? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Uh, one thing, this is another example of it hiding in plain sight. I think because people have focused on Terrell at the turn of the century, they haven't looked as much at the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s for that matter, but they've missed out on this period in the 30s when all of these interesting things were happening in her life. And um, so as I was reading her diary, first she she started mentioning Oscar de Priest. He came to visit uh, her home, which wasn't that unusual. Men would come to visit her because she was a power broker. And you know, so people would come all the time and she would notice that they would come and she would write it in her diary and say why they came. But in this case, she just said that it was notable that he came, but he didn't, she didn't say what his mission was, which kind of tipped me off. I was like, why, why is he there? And uh, then, you know, she, he invited her soon to Congress. And the next thing I know, she's starting this elaborate game of referring to him as she, or sometimes she'll forget and she'll say um, the congressman, and then she'll go back to my friend, and then she'll say DP. But so I started to figure out that all these references were actually to Oscar de Priest. And then um, I went back to the letter files and looked at the official letters um, that you know came on stationery from De Priest and was able to kind of mix those two together and then contacted the family 
um, of Oscar de Priest and was invited to Chicago to see what they had in their holdings. And then in that case, um, talked to them about how, you know, I had this um, thought that perhaps, you know, they had had an affair and what did they think? And um, basically the answer was, oh, yes, that seems highly plausible. Um, you know, uh, they... Uh, his his relationship with with his wife was uh, distant and strained, and you know this seemed like a plausible thing, and so in that context, I I decided to do it. And I know that what you're saying is, is that she tried to hide it, and why would I reveal it? But I think it's important to understand um, the important relationships in her life, and the two main ones, other than with her father, for men were her husband and Oscar de Priest. And it wasn't as long of a relationship, but it was really important to her because it came at a point when she was an older woman in some ways, although you know, for her, not so much because she lived to be 90. But um, nonetheless, this was a kind of um, exciting moment for her and gave her a chance to go dancing again and to, you know, to enjoy the things that she loved, which included dancing. And she hadn't been able to do any, a lot of these things, um, you know, since her husband had passed away. And so my goal was to try to see why, what brought them together. He was younger than she and what the family in uh, Chicago was able to share with me were some of the um, actually definitely racy love letters between Oscar de Priest and these women, um, young, very young Republican women, uh, black women, you know, who um, had affairs with him uh, during the exact same time while he was congressman. And um I was able to see that the pattern was not the same at all with her. Um, they talked politics all the time. They strategized about what they wanted to work on. They, uh, she helped him with a kind of nonpartisan campaign that he was putting together. And uh, she, she wanted him to write for her uh, peace proposals when she was with the you know, Women's uh, International League for Peace and Freedom. So uh, it was as much about the collaboration and their intellectual bond, as well as the fact that this was kind of an exciting new adventure for her, at least at first. Um, it didn't end up working out as well as you, you know, because as you can imagine, he was married. <laughs> so he stayed married. And so it didn't end up lasting. But it was, um, I think, a pretty important period in her life. And so I did decide to talk about it. And I talked with Terrell's family about it. And so they they knew that I was going to do it. But they had read what um, I had written about her uh, early relationship with her husband and also about the um, problems that she had with her reproductive system and basically uh, said that they felt that it would be okay. <laughs> and so I just, um, and she saved all of her diaries for posterity. So part of me always wondered, did yeah. she really not want people to know or did she not want people to know while she was alive? You know, oh, I I'm sorry if the question came off the way you took it. I think it has to be done. It, it absolutely has to be done to, to make sense of who she was and who she imagined herself to be. So her entire autonomy is, is connected to actually being a person who has sex, and yet she's living in a culture in which Black women's sexuality is under such attack and is such a problem that she's managing that. No, I, I think you had to write about it. I just meant it. I th as as I was reading the text, I saw 
or I thought I saw you just very carefully negotiating all of this so that she comes out as herself, as respected, as a person who is just a human. She's a human being, yet uh, like that photograph that, that you annotate so extensively, those women are presenting themselves. They can't have a hair out of place. They, they're, it's as if at every moment they have the weight of representing the entire race. Ugh. And here she gets to be a human being who is allowed to have sex with her husband and write about it and, you know, write cute. I thought the letters were great. Um, the, the last, uh, the third thing that you have for black feminism has to do with, 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 with the revision of history of, of taking reconstruction and making it into a bad thing, which uh, growing up in the 1970s in New York City, I read textbooks that just said reconstruction was bad with cartoons. That's what I was taught. But you here focus on the monument to the faithful colored mammies of the South, that which could have ended up on the mall, and her objection to it. And I was wondering if you had just, and I don't have too much more time, but to share what this was and and why it was so bad uh, for um, for this. Yes, one of the things that I thought was so interesting is that Mary Church Terrell, in her attempt to uh, say that, first of all, don't talk about Black women's impurity. Look at what white women and men have done in terms of, uh, you know, white men raping Black women and white women condoning that. And, and not standing up for Black women, especially those who were domestic servants in their households, whether it was during the time of enslavement or after. So that's part of what she did. The other thing that she did was she talked about the Black mammy myth and this idea that there was this kind of asexual, nurturing Black woman who was um, the perfect example of what a devoted slave would be. And she um, was absolutely rejected that notion. Instead, what she said was that she knew from her own family history that her grandmother and mother, or yeah, grandmother and great grandmother were separated from each other by their enslaver. And this was when her grandmother was a little girl and she never saw her mother again. And the, the notion that these women were satisfied with their lives as so-called, you know, beloved mammies, which is what their enslavers wrote to her and her husband to say, you know, you, your grandmother or your mother was our beloved mammy. <laughs> and she found this to be the most atrocious thing ever. And so when Congress's Senate actually passed in 1923, a monument to faithful colored mammies of the South. She wrote a stinging editorial saying, this is not acceptable. Uh, you cannot say that slavery was something that black women and men look back at with no the same nostalgia that white Southerners are trying to turn into a national myth and are succeeding in doing so, but you know you're not going to put a monument up to that. And um, so the House never did get around to passing it, thank goodness. But that's an uh, example of her trying to shift that dynamic and always saying another part of her Black feminism that I would be happy to end on is to talk about how she had her own version 
of a kind of intersectionality that talked about what she called the double oppression and the and the double handicap of um, having what she called the high hurdle of uh, race and the and racism and the high hurdle of sexism that she had to you know clear uh, to be able to succeed in the world and so she was very clear about these intersections and spoke and wrote about them just like Anna Julia Cooper did. And they were contemporaries who both went to Oberlin at the same time. So there's this genealogy that connects these women. And that's, I think, why your student found her so compelling is because she's speaking a language that uh, Kimberly Crenshaw later helps us understand, but it's not for the first time, right? It, it, It had been there in this longer genealogy of Black women's political thought. No, thank you. There are so many things. I just want to recommend this book so highly. Uh, We've only scratched the surface of this woman's remarkable life. Um, I want to ask you what you're working on now, if you're on to a next project or you're breathing from this last one before we, um, before we end. Well, I I think it's uh, the missing chapters that you mentioned uh, this book could indeed have been two volumes. And um, so there are at least a couple of chapters that I would like to uh, put out into the world before I move on to another project, you know, that come from that. And they both actually are on the two men who we were talking about, Robert Terrell and Oscar Stanton de Priest, neither of whom have been um, treated much in history themselves and who haven't been examined as Uh, interesting and important political figures of their time. And so I hope to be able to write a couple of articles based on those chapters that I had to take out that were more specifically on them as opposed to on their relationship with her. Um, So I left in the relationship but had to take out a lot of the, uh, you know, kind of portrait of of each of these men. And um, so among many other things, that's that's one of the projects that I I hope to be working on these um, extra chapters (laughs) over the summer. Well, um, we'll look forward to having you back uh, on the New Books Network again. I so enjoyed this book and our conversation. Um, and and I want to remind people of the title and where they can get it. Um, this is a book by Allison M. Parker, Unceasing Militant, The Life of Mary Church, Terrell, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Um Please buy it from a bookstore, a brick and mortar, support your local bookstores, or please uh, order it through uh, bookshop.org so that you'll get it to your door, but it will be supporting uh, the brick and mortar. So Allison, thank you so much for the book and for this conversation. Oh, thank you so much for your interview. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the invitation to come on.